0: I have two words for you, which are words that you've probably heard many times in your life, and especially over the last probably several months in different forms. And those two words are these Prove it. Are there any two words you could put together that sound as snotty and bratty as those two words? I mean, even though there are only two of them, there's a great deal of meaning packed into it. And you can almost, like in your head, you can hear the tone, can't you? When someone would say, prove it. Because those two words, they're actually not asking for you to give more information so that they can consider your point of view and maybe come to a different conclusion. No, those two words do not say those things. Instead, those two words are a dare. And what they say is, number one, I don't believe you. Number two, I won't believe you until you give me enough adequate evidence that I can be swayed by those things. And I will not believe you until that point. However, even then, I may not accept what you show me as being real or the truth. So... Prove it. It's kind of how it is, isn't it? Um, And the burden of that proof is put entirely on the one who is challenged to try to sway the other person. And if you think about it, it is a very, very unfair scenario. That's right, two varies. That's how unfair it is. It's unfair because the challenger really doesn't have to do anything but sit back and fairly or unfairly judge what you have to say. They alone are the arbiters of truth within this scenario. They alone can tell what is true and what is false. Now, sometimes, at least conceptually, it is easy for us to prove it. And Something that makes it a lot easier for us to prove something is the amount of evidence that we have or the kind of evidence that we have. Maybe you have a picture or video you can show that proves your point. Maybe you have messages, text messages, emails, uh, things written on with these things called pens or pencils, and you would write on this piece of dried wood Uh, that was very thin called paper, and you would write those. So maybe you have that, too, that you could use as part of your evidence. But here is the thing about that. We live in a time where we really kind of don't trust anything. We have the ability to manipulate pictures and video. We can make it look like someone is saying or doing something that they did not say or do. We can produce texts or emails which tell the story that we want to tell. And the consequence of this is that we have become untrusting of things that normally would tell us the truth. I don't know if you've heard about this, but you know, there's been a big strike in the entertainment world over uh, the last several months, and the actors were on strike and writers are on strike. And one of the things that was a sticking point for the actors was that the studios wanted them to sign this contract when they were starting out, um, that if they appeared in a movie, their likeness could be used in any way by the studio in perpetuity. And so they could put your face, or through AI, dub you doing something in a movie, and you would have no rights to that use. That's kind of scary, isn't it? That this is the kind of world that we live in. And so consequently, it's hard to know what to trust anymore. And we see it all the time, and we'll see it more, especially in the area of politics. If someone is caught doing something wrong, it's a deep fake of them doing something wrong. If if, if someone, you know, uh, says something, then it's just the opposition trying to get them to say that thing that they said. It goes on and on and on, no matter who or which side you vote for. Now, traditionally, one of the the most powerful pieces of evidence is an eyewitness. Um, Someone who saw what happened and can tell you what happened. And the idea is they were there, we were not. So they give us the facts and then we decide uh, what to do with those facts. And there's just one problem with this as well. Do you trust the person who is telling the story? And if any of you have ever served on jury duty, you know that people bring witnesses, and what is it the opposition's job to do? It's to make you think that either they're lying, that they're not qualified to say what it is they're saying, and whatever route they wanna take, in the end, they want you to think this person cannot be trusted to give us this information. It turns out, you know, that the words prove it are actually pretty powerful. And a tool that can be used against anyone at any time. Now, in the book of Luke, Luke wanted to tell the story of Jesus so that people would hear it and believe. That's why we tell people the gospel, right? We tell them about Jesus because we want them to hear and believe. But Luke had some very specific are specific. That's a combination of specific and difficult. You're welcome. You can take that home, write it down now before you forget. He had some very specific and difficult uh, challenges in front of him. And it wasn't just that there were no recording devices available for him to show people video of what Jesus said and did. It was more so that the people of Israel had been waiting for the Messiah to come and restore them as a people. And it was their dream for generations. They had spent generations pursuing this idea that God was going to raise them up as a people. And ever since they fell as a nation, they were waiting for this Messiah to come, this Messiah who would come and restore them and build them up. And by the time that Jesus comes on the scene, they were tired of being controlled by other empires. They were tired of being the people of the almighty God who had to pay taxes to Rome. They were sick of it. They wanted the Messiah to come and set everything right for them. But the problem, by the time again that Luke is writing this gospel, the problem is that the Messiah had come. Jesus had come, done his work on earth, and gone back to his Father in heaven. And many believed him, but many others did not. And if you think about it from, you know, if we remove ourselves from the story a little bit, what he was trying to prove is perhaps one of the more difficult things to prove. Jesus is the Son of God. He died, and he rose again. Well, I've got two words for you about that. Prove it. Prove it. it. Show me that he did. Well, his body's gone. Oh, someone stole it. There are so many things we could insert into the conversation, ways that people have tried to explain why Jesus is not who we say he is. But the primary issue was that Jesus was not who everyone expected him to be. And in fact, God's salvation was not what others expected it to be because he was not a triumphant warrior leading them to a new era of the empire of Israel. Instead, he was a homeless teacher. And again... There is the fact that Jesus died. And, and how can he be the Messiah when he did not do all of the Messiah y things? Shouldn't he have messiahed a little harder if he was really the Messiah? So Luke needed to provide proof. He needed to tell them exactly who Jesus was because, again, he wanted them to see or hear the evidence and believe. So through his own first-person witness, Luke says, I was there. That's why I'm telling you what happened. Through his own first-person witness, along with the lives of many others who were changed by Jesus, Luke told the story of Jesus. Where do you start? Well, birth is usually a pretty good place to start in telling the story of Jesus. But there's more to it than that, isn't there? Because Luke is not just trying to prove that Jesus was born to Mary and Joseph a long time ago. He was trying to, well, not so long for him, to be fair. He's trying to prove that Jesus came from somewhere and then was born to Mary and Joseph. And Joseph. So he had to prove that Jesus had the pedigree to be this Savior. Uh, so he told of the angels appearing to both Mary and Elizabeth. He told of how from birth, Jesus was the promised one. And, and proof was all over the place. There were angels, fulfilled prophecy, a baby leaping in the womb to a woman who shouldn't have been able to get pregnant, shepherds, more angels. All of heaven declared that Jesus was the Messiah, fathered by the Spirit, born to Joseph and Mary. It's not that hard to believe, is it? Well, but I didn't see the angels. And, and I need some sort of paternity test in order for you to prove that Jesus came from the Holy Spirit. At the time when the book... The, gosh, what is up with my words today? The book of look. That's where I was going with that one. That's where I was going with that one. Just buckle up, folks. <laughs> buckle up. At the time when this book was written, there was a great division between the new group of Christians and the Jewish community. And this is an important thing for us to kind of wrap our minds around. The Jews viewed Christians as enemies of God and followers of a false Messiah. This was not a small deal to them it was huge and so luke needed to not only prove that jesus was the messiah he had to show them that jesus came from god and that he lived his life on earth in the way that god intended for him to because if you're a good jew at this time The easiest thing for you to do is to look back at Jesus and say, well, he was a rebel. He broke all the rules. How can someone who broke all the rules be the one that God has sent to save us? The evidence, they would say, doesn't match up to what it is you're asserting. So Luke has to show that Jesus did the right kind of things, that in fact, he was a good Jew. And where does he start in the life of Jesus? Well, from birth. And point number one here for us today is that Jesus' family were good Jews who followed the law, and Jesus was brought up in the right way. This is an important part of what Luke tries to do here in the early parts of his gospel. Within this one simple narrative, which it is a pretty simple narrative, there are two different important observances that happen. In this one event and both of them are significant and and the first one is the purification of the mother at the temple the basic explanation here is that blood whether it came from a woman's cycle or from childbirth it made the woman unclean and so they had to go through a ritual a ritual in order to be clean again you find this information here in Leviticus chapter 12 verses 1 through 3 and verse 8. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, a woman who becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son will be ceremonially unclean for seven days, just as she is unclean during her monthly period. On the eighth day, the boy is to be circumcised. It was a little bit later if he had a girl. Verse 8, if she cannot afford a lamb, she is to bring two doves or two young pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And this way the priest will make atonement for her and she will be clean. Now the timeline for this is this would happen 40 days after the birth for a son, excuse me, or 80 days in the birth of a daughter. And what is important for us to note about this is that this is what was supposed to happen. And I know it's not really exciting news to report on what was supposed to happen. Because after all, it was supposed to happen. So I get that, that from that point of view, it's a little weird to make this something that is so important. But it is important for Luke to say, Mary and Joseph, even though Mary claimed to be having, you know, a baby through the power of the Holy Spirit, they still did all of the things that people who love God would do. They did those things. It was a part of their life. And Mary was following God and paying respect to him. And she brought her offering of pigeons, which were what the poor brought for their sacrifice. Secondly, Luke tells us that they also went to present Jesus at the temple. Uh, you might consider this in some ways to be like the Lion King moment, you know. <laughs> that whole thing, right? I just mumbled in sort of a tune. Um, this was a practice that families would go through with their firstborn sons, and it was called the redemption of the firstborn. Uh, It comes here from Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 2 and 11 through 13. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me every firstborn male, the first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether human or animal. After the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you as he promised on oath to you and your ancestors, you are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey, but if you do not redeem it, break its neck, redeem every firstborn among your sons. Now, I'm sure there are lots of questions that are coming up here for you. Um, You're redeeming a firstborn donkey with a lamb. Doesn't that seem like off? Uh, There's a lot of nuance here that we're not going to get into today, but here's the point. The firstborn of both people and animals were to be dedicated to the Lord, and Uh, Animals, in these different cases, were sacrificed, uh, but the human beings were to serve God throughout their lives, and the Levites actually served in place of all of the firstborn males in Israel, so that group, that priestly group, would stand up and serve in the way that you might consider someone dedicated to God would serve, and a payment of five shekels was paid to the temple treasury to redeem the firstborn child. Now... Mary goes and observes what she is supposed to. They take Jesus and they observe what they are supposed to. But this practice, this observance, seems a little bit different with Jesus, doesn't it? He is being publicly dedicated to the Lord, given to God. And so that piece of this story, again, is significant because they had followed all the rules. And it's easy to overlook these things in what comes next, but Luke was making of that very specific point. Look, they loved God, and they followed his law. In chapter 2, verses 39 through 40, Luke says... When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. That's important, too, because Jesus was a kid who did what? Followed the law. He came from a family who also followed the law. They were obedient to God, and the way it's told as matter of fact shows that this obedience to God was assumed in their lives. There there was not a question over whether they were going to do these things, and they raised Jesus in this way. Jesus was not some sort of irreverent rebel that came from a house where people did whatever they wanted to do and raised him to throw off the beliefs of Israel. Instead, he was someone who grew up in a poor family that observed all they were supposed to and even gave sacrifices when they didn't have much to do so. What is Luke trying to do with these stories? Who is he trying to make credible? Not just Jesus, but Mary and Joseph and the whole circumstances of how he came to be. This is who they are. This is how Jesus was raised. These are the people that raised him. You can trust them that this is how it went, which is a big ask, isn't it? It's still a big ask. There were witnesses in Jerusalem that day who were purposed by God to recognize the Messiah. This was their job. This was their job. Their job was to wait for the Messiah to come. There's an ongoing theme throughout the beginning of Luke, which is the confirmation of who Jesus is through witness and testimony. So the angel appeared to Zechariah. To tell him about the birth of John and the one who was coming, the angel appeared to Mary. John leaped in Elizabeth's womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and confirmed who Jesus was going to be. The angels appeared to the shepherds, and they sang the song of heaven. The shepherds witnessed the child and told everyone else about what they had seen. So people saw these things happen. They saw all of these things. It's not just Mary and Joseph saying this is how it was. And and it wasn't just angels that now you can't see anymore. There are witnesses to what happened. And the stories that they're telling are telling of something extraordinary happening through the birth of Jesus. So within the story of Jesus' family adhering to God's plan, there is another story about two witnesses, and they were very specific because they were there to testify, not just about who Jesus was, but to tell this one very important truth. What is happening through Jesus is what God has planned. This is not some scheme by people who, again, want to overthrow God's law or what God is doing here. When you meet Jesus, you meet someone who has been confirmed, anointed, shown by heaven and by earth, to be the one who is doing what God wants in this place. Let's look at verses 25 through 32 and 36 through 38. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. This, my friends, is a declaration. But it doesn't stop there. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then had been a widow for 84 years. She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. Okay, Luke sets a scene for us where we have two people, a man and a woman, who were at the temple when Jesus was being dedicated. Did they know that Joseph and Mary were bringing Jesus to the temple that day? Not necessarily. Simeon gets a vibe, right, that he needs to go into the temple courts. Anna's already there because she lives there. That is her place. So they don't necessarily know that he's going to be here on that day. There was no postcard sent to Dear Anna, Please meet us at the temple on this day. Dear Simeon, none of that existed. Instead, uh, Simeon was filled with the Holy Spirit and had been promised by God that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And Anna stayed in the temple night and day, fasting and praying, waiting for the redemption of Israel. She had been doing this in some form for a long, long time. For a long time. Both of these people were dedicated to God in extraordinary ways, and both were waiting for the redemption of Israel, the restoration that only the Messiah could bring. And both of them were attuned to what God was doing in the world. How do we know that they were attuned to what God was doing in the world? Because Simeon was full of the Holy Spirit, and Anna lives in the temple. She lives there waiting for something something that she's not sure when it's going to come or when it's going to happen and this is important to the story that luke wants to tell because number one would these people have known who anna and simeon were if i mean this is after the death of jesus so this is a long time later anna is not most likely not there anymore, as is Simeon. Okay, so to be fair, there was a long period of time. But would their parents have known? Or their grandparents have known? About these two people who were at the temple all the time. I mean, Luke calls her the prophet Anna without blinking. People know who she is. And this is important to the story that Luke is telling. The fact that Simeon is full of the Holy Spirit is important to the story that Luke is telling. Because who then is the driving force behind all this stuff? It's God. And if you think about the alternative, the alternative is that Mary and Joseph either engineered all of this so that their son could become an important figure in the world. Or at some point when Jesus became an adult, he engineered all of this. There are not that many options, right, that, that are on the other side of what Luke is saying happened. And this is maybe one of the most significant details. Upon simply seeing the child, they knew who he was. And what did they recognize about him? That he's the promised one, the Messiah he will bring about comfort, salvation, restoration for Israel. And here's one of the neatest things about this story is that upon seeing Jesus, the lives of Anna and Simeon were complete. And they weren't sad about that. They rejoiced. Why? Because they have seen the salvation of God. He's here. They don't get to see how it all plays out, I'm pretty sure. They don't get to see how that all plays out, but they know he's here. And they rejoice and celebrate and tell anyone they can that this baby is not just a baby. But Luke also recognizes through the words of Simeon that the path to the restoration that God is bringing through Jesus is, in fact, going to be a very difficult one. People are not going to be happy with how this plays out. It's not like, you know, Jesus just started the way the right way and then got off course and became a heretic. Jesus was in this from the start and from the very beginning. He was anointed to do the work of God here on earth. And Simon confirms from those who are reading years later, at the time that Luke wrote this gospel, that the life of Jesus was always going to lead to this conflict with who Israel had become. From Luke chapter 2, verses 33 through 35. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him, Jesus. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Now, I looked for this greeting card at Target you know, to give to Danny, um, and I couldn't find it, so maybe next time. But the message here is an, is a strong one. Um, throughout his ministry, Jesus proclaimed that the only way to the kingdom of God, something the nation had long sought, was through whom? It was through Him. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The ones who Believed in him would receive salvation, they would rise, but the ones who did not believe in him would not receive salvation and they would fall. So let's put all this together for a moment. He is the one who was sent as the salvation of Israel the one who will restore and rebuild, anointed, sent by God to do these things. And you're not going to like it. You're not going to like what God has planned. He is going to be someone that people are going to easily and readily speak against. Because it is going to seem as if He is not only wrong, but leading people in the wrong direction. And Mary, this is going to sting for you too. Because you are going to be hurt in deep ways throughout all of this. Throughout his ministry, Jesus lived that life, didn't he? He spoke truth a truth that people didn't want to hear a truth that people said in their minds uh, maybe out loud more than once prove it you're the son of god prove it and we have examples of this don't we we do if you are the son of god then if you are the son of god then why don't you we see this over and over again So who are we in this story? Are we Mary and Joseph following God's direction, knowing that while they didn't have any sense of where God was going, that God was in control and it was going to turn out how God wanted it to be? There's a a sense of faith and trust there that I deeply admire. Are we Anna and Simeon waiting patiently for God to fulfill his promises? Crying out to God every day, Lord, come quickly. Are we the people of the age who had really no idea what was coming through this child? They were not ready. And while some would rejoice over what Jesus brought to the world, others would kill him because of who he was and what he said. Or are we the readers? going over this account that Luke has written and trying to decide, is this the truth? So did Luke prove it? And it is here that we recognize that no matter how well written the gospel of Luke is, no matter how many witnesses he pulls in, no matter how many stories he tells, Luke can only do so much to tell people about who Jesus is. Jesus could only do so much to show people who he is. People will hear and believe and others will hear and reject. But if we are those who believe our job like Mary, Joseph, Anna, Simeon, and Luke is be a witness to the Messiah who has come to redeem the world, And maybe we weren't there in the temple that day. Well, I'm, it's conclusive. We were not there in the temple that day. We didn't see him carried in. We didn't hear the words of Anna and Simeon. We didn't see the empty tomb. But we have seen how the love of God that was revealed in Jesus has redeemed and restored us. A redemption that we are not worthy of. But God did it anyway. Because what does John say? God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son to condemn the world, but to redeem the world through him. We have a story to tell to a world that is without the knowledge of who Jesus really is. But we are witnesses proclaiming the truth, laying it in front of those who would say to us, prove it, offering them the chance not to be proven wrong, to experience the life-changing love of God. And our prayer should be at all times that God would give us the strength and willingness to be a witness. And that through the witness we give, as imperfect as it is, that those we witness to Will know that God loves them. Amen.